Hello and welcome to the 189th and Patreon-only episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Thursday the 22nd of December 2022 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We continue our discussion with Sierra Pascual Marquina about the Venezuelan communes. The links to the articles we mention in the interview are contained in the show notes. Okay, let's jump straight in. To what extent do the communes, I suppose, act maybe perhaps as a competitor for some types of state social services or as a cheap replacement to them? Actually, that's a great question. In this, they are not a competitor in the sense that, I mean, you could say that they are a competitor in the sense that there's a dual power that emerges in a context like ours. In the communes that are more consolidated, for instance, in El Panal Commune, the police listen to the territory because the people run a security system, an internal democratically run security system, and they don't want the police to go there. So there's a dual, there's a real dual power, and El Panal Commune is a kind of a state, a kind of parallel state. So in that sense, there is actually a real competition between an emerging popular power and the old bourgeois state. But when you are actually talking about, for instance, running services and things like that, I mean, according to the Venezuelan, basically according to the Venezuelan the state has to grant services to the people. And there's no reason why communes should grant services that uh, the state should be granting in the territory. However, in the more recent years, because of the blockade and generally the, the crisis, there has been a tendency towards uh, not exactly privatizing, but really, in fact, privatizing uh, some of the services. And some communes, for instance, a commune in Barcelona that's called Luisa Case, Luisa, Barcelona is a city in the east of the country, a commune that's called Luisa Cáceres has actually assumed the collection of uh, solid waste, basically trash. They do trash collection through an agreement that they carried out with the major's office. So some some communes are in this context when, when there's a process, there's privatization, which is the process that we are frankly living in. Some communes are actually disputing so that they can themselves carry out some of these services like trash collection. And this is building a commune in an urban context, even though the commune that we have been talking about is an urban commune and it's actually a very successful commune. But many communes have a hard time finding kind of like an economic option in the city because the Venezuelan cities are actually not non-productive cities. Uh, so actually for this commune, which is a very robust commune in Barcelona, Luisa Cáceres commune, actually taking on the collection of waste has been a good economic alternative. In addition to that, this commune in Barcelona is also an eco-socialist commune. They do recycling and they have a deep commitment to nature, like all communes, but this one particular, they, they are involved in recycling and in other kind of like organic, small organic urban production. So, I mean, to, to wrap it up in terms of services, the Venezuelan state should assume the services in this particular context, in this contradictory context. Some communes are assuming the care of some services. This is generally done through an agreement with the local government. And it 
is actually one form of self-governing and generating income for the commune. Okay, so another kind of a question here. Kind of a general point on the kind of the Venezuelan experience. I see that the vanguard movement in, say, El Panal is called the Alexis Vive Patriotic Force. And we know like that it's known as the Bolivarian Revolution. There seems to be like, so kind of a contradiction to me, like as a communist looking at it, there is a focus on like, you know, the commune, but also nearly an element whereby they wrap themselves in the flag uh, you know, like kind of into patriotism, into into the nation state. What do you make of that? And why do you think that, that the Venezuelan experiment has that kind of kind of a nationalist element to its communism? Well, first of all, Bolivarianism is a national project, but a national Latin American project. It's not a national Venezuelan project. Bolivarianism, of course, refers to Bolivar the main figure in the independence struggle. And his army basically liberated not only what we now know as Venezuela, but also Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and basically Bolivia from from the Spanish colonialists. So when in the Bolivarian process, when we talk about the Bolivarian project, we are not talking about the national Venezuelan project. We are talking about a project of Latin American integration that uh, has its eyes put, of course, on the emancipation of the people of Latin America, the economic and social and political emancipation of of Latin Americans. Of course, Latin America is a global South continent, uh, which is exposed to all the kind of like all forms of neocolonial domination imposed by U.S. and European imperialism current. U.S. and European imperialism. So when we talk about it, when we talk about Bolivarianism, we are actually talking about a horizon of collective emancipation that is national, yes, but in understanding Latin America as the nation. That's one thing that I want to highlight. Then there's another issue, and I think, frankly, there's no contradiction between this and, and I mean, I am a communist, and I think many common arts would identify as communists, although some of them uh, wouldn't because uh, that hasn't necessarily been always part of the of the debate. So I would say that there's no contradiction there between the Bolivarian project and communism. Actually, I don't think that you can be a consequent communist uh, here in, in in Latin America and Venezuela specifically and not be a Bolivarian and to not struggle against the different forms of oppression that exist here, including imperialist oppression. But then when you come to Venezuela, to the actual territory of Venezuela, of course, Venezuela is a global South country. And it's, of course, a global South country. It's a dependent country, an economically dependent country, understanding dependency as the theory that developed in Latin America that explains why global South countries are are poor, no? It's not that uh, we are stupid or it's not even that we have bad governments here. It's basically that there's a relation between the center and the periphery that extracts value out of the periphery. So when you come to Venezuela, which is uh, historically, well, for more than 100 years, basically, an oil-producing country, the truth is that Venezuela has, uh, for for a very long time, before the Bolivarian Revolution, basically, a producing country, but most of the wealth, uh, natural wealth, natural riches of this country were, of course, taken by enormous 
Global North Corporations. So with the Bolivarian process, there was a, just a nationalist project that we could say was actually Venezuelan territory itself. Venezuelan, what we know as Venezuela's territory, was involved in a of the research here, but also gas, another reason from maybe some perspective could be called kind of like a nationalist project of taking control of our resources. Now, I don't have any problem with it. I don't think any left person has any problem with this. And this comes hand on hand with a kind of like reinterpretation of the nation, but that continues to be nation, you know, like interpreting nation as the state, the nation, the Venezuela, and the people have been having control over their resources. This comes hand on hand with a sort of nationalism or patriotism, but this nationalism is always different. Nationalism is always different in the global south and in the global north. I mean, the oppressed peoples of the global south, when we talk about our nation, about the place where we live, about the space where we build our life, that has to be understood in opposition to a global north that has been historically extracting and wealth out of here. Right, you know, in Ireland we have the same experience as like probably the only European colony. The nationalism was a, a kind of a progressive movement, whereas well, the if you went to England, country, nationalism uh, is is a reactionary movement. That absolutely, in 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 the Spanish state is the same. The Basque country, Catalonia, those nationalisms are potentially revolutionary. Potentially, I would say revolutionary nationalisms, and they have been. And, uh, so there's those those. Those particular examples can help us understand what it means to be nationalist in the periphery. Was there anything else you want to talk about in El Panal before we talk about the Indorca workers? Oh, is there anything to talk about? No, I think we are good. I mean, uh, look at the articles on Venezuela analysis. Look for El Panal. There's a set of articles, interviews. And I mean, there's so much to learn from El Panal. It's really an extraordinary... From El Panal coming and from all... From all Venezuela, working Venezuelan communes, there's a lot to learn. And I think that, that as there is a tendency, perhaps, hopeful north amongst the youth to have a more left perspective. I think it's very important to learn from the successes and also the failures of building an alternative society here in Venezuela. And I encourage all, all of you, you know, like to, to try to learn from this. And of course, to think about how to build an alternative society beyond the, I mean, like, Thinking the theory is super important, but also uh, looking at these exercises of self-government and building new social relationships in the territories. Yeah, one one question, but before we finish on, is like you say that the the communes are growing. Say El Panal is a growing commune. Do you mean growing in support, or are we also talking about geographical expansion? Uh, well, it's actually a good question. And it depends. I mean. I would say, first of all, I would say that the communes that actually exist in this moment in Venezuela, they are growing. And surprisingly, they've been growing since 2017. Really difficult. Many communes that they had been in a situation of semi, in a kind of like a sleepy situation, many of the communes. And around 2017, when things got really, really difficult, they began to grow again. When I say that they are growing, I generally mean that they are growing in terms of the their internal organization, the hegemon, they hurry. But in the case of El Panal Commune, they actually also think about expanding in terms of the territory, in terms of expanding towards the east of Caracas, because if they are able to win the minds and hearts of people 
in the adjacent neighborhood, they would grow in that direction. And that's the idea to actually grow as a coming, not only in terms of their political uh, organization and, and means of production, but in, also in terms of the territory. Yeah, one one thing that kind of seems to me somewhat related, I don't know if you're aware of the American economist Michael Hudson. Uh, uh-huh. He wrote a book on super imperialism and stuff like that. But he, he's been talking about, and I think it seems to be making itself a reality. You've been talking about, say, the experience of, say, Russia after being uh, having uh, sanctions put on after 2014 and Crimea and all that, that the actual sanctions, the effect of the sanctions, now Russia obviously is a massive state with an industrial base, but the effect of the sanctions was to reduce the reliance on imports and to domestically produce the stuff that you are finding difficulty to, to get into the country due to the embargo. Now, Venezuela, I think, like, the last time I was I was reading about it now, this could be at a date that it was not self-sufficient in food and basically didn't really have an industrial base. It was largely, you know, like oil exports, et cetera, et cetera. Like, has the embargo kind of paradoxically led to maybe the government having more of an industrial or a food policy than previously? Well, I mean, certainly Venezuela is not as, uh, it's a highly dependent country because it's a, an oil, as you were saying, an oil producing country and its economy shifted to being, you know, like say 10 years ago, 98% of the national income came from oil. 98% of the national income coming from outside, right? I mean, that doesn't mean that 98% of the GDP was oil based, but of the money that came from outside was uh, from oil sales. So imagine that. Um, when a country is a, a, monoprodu- a, global con- a global south country, when we are monoproducers, generally it means that our other production completely disappears. So there's actually, the when you compare, for instance, Venezuela to Colombia, we are always envious in a good sense, even though we know that we are the same people. But in Colombia, there's a lot more production, campesino production, and also agribusiness production. But especially what we are interested in is in campesino productions. And so in Venezuela, the the production of food is, is not, Venezuela is not self-sustainable in terms of, and it actually produces very little else other than gasoline and so on. This meant that when the sanctions came in, the situation was really catastrophic. Of course, it was particularly catastrophic for the working class and for the poor people. But it was a situation that was truly catastrophic and then actually brought the small production apparatus actually existing in Venezuela uh, was kind of like brought to a halt. It was already very small and it was brought to a halt by the sanctions. Uh, machine parts or oils for machines or, or seeds of seeds that were being imported. And certainly most of the seeds actually were being imported or other things that you need to produce uh, foods. This meant that the production came basically to a halt around 2019, 2018, 2019, 2020. The situation was just terrible. Uh, now, has there been, a, a, say, I have to say it with big quotes, a good side to the sanctions? I mean, I would say self-organization. And of course, there's the sanctions have meant that the government has had to make certain kind of like capitalist openings. There was there were parts of the economy 
that were controlled parts of the economy, certain prices and things like that of the, in the economy were uh, controlled. So there has actually been a liberalization of the economy. And over the last six months, there was, or actually over the last year, there has been, again, in quotes, an economic recovery. Now, this economic recovery is a capitalist economic recovery. So if it's, of course, as any capitalist recovery, it's benefiting a very small sector of the economy. So there has been a reactivation of the economy, also because of the sanctions. Some of the capitalists haven't been bourgeois, haven't been able to take their money out of the country, and they ha- they've had to reinvest it here. So uh, there have been kind of like signs of an actual capitalist recovery of the economy over the last uh, year or so. Uh, now, this is not the recovery that communists aim for. But simultaneously, I can also say that, and this is what I want to highlight, I mean, that there's that we are in a society that is in a permanent dispute. I mean, class struggle is ongoing. And those of us who are committed to the communes also see this moment with hope. If we are able to, as there is an economic recovery, and indeed as the state has more funding from this economic recovery because of taxes, etc., uh, we think and we are going to fight so that the communes get part of <laughs> get a part of this so that uh, the economic recovery is not just a capitalist recovery and it, it actually means the, this whole situation is actually very very contradictory because as we see the capitalist sector grow we are seeing in this to a small degree a growth in the communal process we do not want capitalist growth we want communal or or socialist growth, and that's what we will be struggling for. So maybe it's a good point to talk about the Indorker workers and their experiences of occupying their factory. Do you want to tell us a little bit about their experience? Sure, Indorca is a factory that it's a factory in the industrial belt of Puerto Ordaz. Puerto Ordaz is a city in the south of the country by the Orinoco River, an enormous river. And it's basically Puerto Ordaz was, was an initiative in the 50s when there were attempts to overcome dependency in Latin America and in Latin American countries in Venezuela. Specifically, this city was built, which is a city for that is basically built on to, to transform raw material, but also to, to go up the production chain. Now, this is an enormous initiative that has uh, factories that make, I don't know, like uh, metal beams. And there's factories that process metal ores and turn it into, well, different construction things. It also for the export of these materials, etc. Indorca is a factory in this city that services other much larger factories. For instance, they, they will make train wagons for the factories that have, there's some of the largest state-owned factories have train tracks that connect the different plants because this is an enormous industrial infrastructure. So at Indorca, for instance, they will make the train wagons where their factories, they'll put whatever product they have to bring from one plant to another. Or they'll make uh, oil Kind of like in the oil fields, you have to have these 
keys to close, open and close the flow of fill. So we are talking about the factory that makes for large industrial factories, basically. Uh, now, the interesting thing about Indorca is that it's actually a private, it was a privately owned factory. And around 2012, many capitalists in Venezuela who were owners of factories began with a process of sabotaging production. Why? Because it was a time when the new labor law was about to be passed. And while the new labor law was not like socialist law in the sense that it still organizes capitalist exploitation, uh, you know, it says like how many hours you can exploit somebody, like eight a day. But the bourgeois, the capitalists were not very happy with this new law because it also granted workers certain rights within the framework of capitalism. So many capitalists began to actually sabotage the production. And they thought that by sabotaging production, they would bring the government to its needs and that the government would not pass the law. But actually, the law was passed on May Day in 2012. Uh, this was very important for us of Venezuela. But in the case of Indorca, the owner of Indorca continued to sabotage the production process. The workers of Indorca saw that, I mean, obviously the, what they produce is important and their knowledge is important for the production system in Venezuela. So when they saw that the owner was, was basically sabotaging the process by laying off people, letting the workers go into work one day and not the other day, these factories far away so that the workers come to work on a bus, not sending the bus to get the workers, not repairing the machinery, etc. This is These were the different forms in which they sabotaged the process. So what happened is that the workers decided that they would set up a guard of, of the factory because they began to worry that also the owner of the factory was going to start taking out the, mach the machinery out of the factory. So they set up shop in a shed outside of the factory. They began to take turns and the workers would sleep there and stay there 24 hours a day to make sure that there wasn't a touch of the infrastructure and the machinery in the factory. Eventually, the owner totally closed shop, let all the workers go and close shop. But the workers, a group of uh, maybe 10, would stay on a permanent rotation outside of the factory in this shed outside of the perimeter of the factory. And they were doing this because precisely they wanted to risk guard to make sure that the stuff there wasn't lost and because they already had in mind taking control of the factory. The law that you were talking about, Tom, the law of... Um, Article 149, I think. Yeah, the labor law. That's right. So the law has an, an article, 149, that actually allows for workers to take over a factory, to take control of the means of production and self-run it if the owner, the capitalist, leaves the enterprise. That's what exactly what happened. And over a period of two years, the workers of Indorca lived outside of the perimeter of the factory. They received a lot of support and solidarity from other workers in other factories. And finally, after two years of facing thugs, the thugs of the capitalist, 
try to steal the stuff in the factory or take, they try to and actually send the police. They put, they locked up several of the workers. In which it was two years of very intense dispute and fight, basically, over the means of production. And finally, after two years of also coming to Caracas, setting up outside of the, basically, the presidential palace, they slept for a period of time outside of, while some were safeguarding the factory, other workers were here in Caracas sleeping in the street outside of the presidential palace so that Article 149 would be granted to them. And eventually they succeeded, and they have now this uh, indoor Kaisa workers-run factory. It's an amazing initiative. It's really something that one can learn a lot from. The workers have been since 2015, basically, in control of the factory. Uh, they run the processes democratically. They decide, you know, like what they are going to produce, how they are going to produce it, and what they are going to do with the surplus. They also all get the same pay. They decide everything, absolutely everything, in an, and this might seem a little bit crazy to decide all the important things in an assembly, but they really do it, and they do it in a very efficient way. So it's an extraordinary experience. So one of the critiques you hear from people is that, you know, socialism or communism is, is just meeting hell, hell, hell through meetings. But what's the reality then of, of like, the assemblies in say, El Panal or the workers' place? Like, what level of assembly bureaucracy is there? Let, let's, let's talk about the assemblies in, because they are kind of different. Let's talk about the assembly in Indorca. I've been to two assemblies. Uh, they hold an assembly once a month, so it's not like all the time, just one half-day assembly every month where everybody participates from the person who's at the, in the machinery, from the people who are the security, from the people to... Everybody participates in these assemblies. And basically, in the case of Indorca, right now, there's about 45 workers. It's not a massive plant. It's for about 45, 50 workers. And they all sit on the big table. And one of the people presents... On the on a whiteboard, they write all the income and all the out, everything that has come in and everything that has come out. Totally 100% open accounting. And then they see how the thing is going collectively and they set, decide the, the situation is very difficult, actually. I should not, uh, I mean, the situation is very difficult because, because of the whole economic situation in Venezuela. And on top of that, because it's a worker-controlled factory, some other capitalist enterprises do not want to hire the work of a factory that's under worker control for obvious reasons. So this is this this factory doesn't have it easy. These workers don't have it easy. But in the assemblies, they decide basically everything. Like what's their, their income going to be every month? Their income varies month to month depending on on what work comes into the factory. There's been some months that actually workers made. No money, unfortunately, at the worst of the crisis. And there's months when they make more money. And they divided, they, they decided collectively, they decided collectively, well, uh, we do need to fix this machinery or the bus or the gasoline. We need to put more money for the gasoline because the gasoline is very scarce. So they have to buy it on the black market and it's sold into the blockade. So there's all these decisions, these small decisions that have to be taken. Of course, also large decisions like, while all the workers make the same, according to the law, it has to be a committee of three people. 
uh, that's kind of like thought as a traditional capitalist enterprise direction. Three people who are the signatures. There's the president, the vice president, and the secretary, which is a, a kind of like normal confirmation of capitalist enterprises. So they have to vote who those people kind of like formally representing them in legal terms will be. So those decisions are also taken collectively in the assemblies. Everything from like, if uh, there's not a lot of work, are they going to be uh, cut a couple of hours in the factory instead of being eight hours in the factory? Are they going to be at the factory just for six hours? What do they do? What, how do they rotate on the work? Because there's also rotational uh, responsibilities, etc., etc. All that is decided in the assembly. I mean, basically, I say I would say that in general terms, and what I have learned from going to a mini assembly from both communes and factories, the thing that I would say that the thing that I would like to highlight is that actually they are not that different. Basically, what the side is what they are going to do, how they are going to do it, what are they going to do with the surplus. What are their political objectives? What are their production objectives? Are they matching their goals? What do they have to do to match their goals? And how are they going to plan for the future work? And I could say that that, that's a synthesis of what an assembly is, both in a commune and worker-run factory now, and the factory without bosses. So what is the role of, say, um, kind of worker self-education like in these worker-run factories? Of course, it's super important. Political education, self-education is really, really important. The workers from Indorka, in this particular factory, they didn't come from a... They were not party members or anything like that. And they say, they always highlight that their main political education happened during the two years and a half that they were sitting, you know, like protecting the means of production and that they realized that they could take decisions collectively by spending so much time together. They realized that they are the ones who know how to run the machinery and that they basically would have the capacity to run the factory. So that was the first kind of like, that was the first moment of, kind of like coming to terms with their potential as a class when they were doing this process of protecting the the means of production with the objective of taking control of it. So that was the first moment. But then once they took control of the factory, they initiated a very wonderful process of educational formation. Many of the workers were actually uh, literate. So they started uh, teaching, giving each other two hours of the work Two hours were devoted to education. Some people would be learning how to read. Other people would be going through political self-education workshops. Other people would be training other people on the different mechanics, like the administration. Of course, administration and production have historically been separated. So the people from administration would be teaching the workers, the factory workers, the mechanical workers, how to run the administrative part of it. And vice versa, the people from the administration of the factory would be learning how to run the machinery. So it was a period of two to three years when they devoted two hours and sometimes up to four hours to political self collective self education. The process kind of like slowed down because they everybody was reading and debating and the political education they were satisfied with the process of political education that they had gone through. Also, the crisis got very 
difficult and they had to focus more on production when they had actually jobs coming in. So the self-education processes are very, very important in, in Indorca. And I think in any worker-controlled factory, you will find that political education is, is fundamental. And when you go to Indorca, you, you find these people, they have a tremendous capacity to analyze the situation as it is. They are very critical. Of course, they are very aware of the imperialist blockade. They are also critical of kind of like some liberalization tendencies that exist in the Venezuelan society right now. And they have a very, the most important thing there is that they know by experience, not just as communists who suspect it, but they know by their own experiences that workers can self-run the enterprises. And that's like the most important teaching from them. I will say one more thing about this experience of Indorca. And that's that in the blockade, in the context of the crisis and the blockade, most private factories and many state-run factories in Indorca, in, in Puerto Ordaz, in the city where Indorca is, closed shop. They couldn't sustain the impact of the blockade. But Indorca was able to sustain it, and it's, it's there to stay. It's there to stay, and it's there for us to learn from. So then going back to kind of a more kind of meta level or whatever like i've recently i told you off offline that we recently i did some interviews on the cordones experience and experienced the general experience of the chilean revolution in the early 70s that they also had a labor law similar to the one whereby if the capitalists are not running their their factories or they're trying to go do a, a go slow to to destroy the government that the workers can take it over and that was used by the workers a lot of time to socialize the means of production. But in Chile, you did not have the army essentially backing the socialist government at the time. And in Venezuela, we see that the army is has supported Chavez and since has supported Maduro. They're, they're up for the Bolivarian project. When we, we look at the two kind of countries in the, say, Central and South America that the army supports essentially supports the left-wing movements are Cuba and Venezuela. Both times we see the imperial response is a blockade. Do we see any movement on the blockade in in Venezuela? Do we have hope for an end to it? I've seen recently uh, Maduro meeting, I think, John Kerry on the sidelines of some international meeting. What are the hopes for the lifting of it in the longer term or the near term? Well, first, the, the impact of I should really highlight this is, is really devastating. It, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, well, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people have died because of the blockade. It's criminal. Um, anybody who is listening to us has to, I mean, like internationally, anything that you can do to voice heard about the impact of the blockade would be good. Well, the sanctions are going to stay here, here while the democratically elected government, the Bolivarian government, is in place. That is the truth. However, because of the war in Ukraine, obviously, and the, also the sanctions on Russia precisely, the U.S. and in general the European countries too are in more need of the Venezuelan oil than before. Venezuela is tremendous. I mean, the, the oil reserves in Venezuela 
are technically the largest oil reserves in the world. Although that could be questioned because a lot of our, uh, an important part of our oil reserves are heavy crude oil. But nonetheless, the oil reserves of Venezuela are enormous. So actually, uh, about three weeks ago, OFAC, which is the office, OFAC is the office in the Treasury Department that makes concessions, uh, opens up concessions to enterprises that want to deal with sanctioned countries. So Chevron was giving an OFAC license to exploit oil in Venezuela two, three weeks ago. This is one corporation, a U.S. corporation, that has given a license to exploit in Venezuela. This is actually something that is, of course, ideally Venezuela should be exploiting its own oil. But given the circumstances, Chevron having, you know, like this license to exploit and, of course, turning a good part of what's exploited to Venezuela is actually a good app. But these are going to be small first steps because in the in truth, the U.S. government is not going to lift the sanctions because not only do they want this government to come down, but most importantly, they want to make it known that a socialist project is not viable. And while I've said before that Venezuela has a capitalist economy, it is clear and it's well known that uh, the objective of the Bolivarian process beginning in 2006 is socialism. So they are basically the, the main objective here with the sanctions to build an apparent appearance that it is not possible that socialism will be a catastrophe wherever it's applied. So that those are the goals of the of the sanctions when it comes to Venezuela and to Cuba too. That, that's why Cuba is under sanctions, which is not the same as the reason why Russia is sanctioned, because obviously Putin is no socialist and there's no horizon of socialism in Russia. So there's different reasons why the U.S. applies sanctions. Sanctions are always criminal, no matter against what country they are applied, but they are applied with different uh, objectives every time. So I just want to figure out who are these like people that Venezuela are sponsoring? Like who are the terrorists that are sponsoring? That is the justification. Like it, it's pretty laughable. Well, basically, the accusation against Venezuela is not of a state terrorism. It's actually of a lack of democracy. The U.S. does not recognize our president as democratically elected. And in fact, it tried to impose a puppet president, Juan Guaido. Uh, so basically, they are alleging that this is not a democracy, that this Nicolas Maduro government is a dictatorship. And that is why Venezuela is sanctioned. The sanctions began with, with individual sanctions. The different people in the government were being sanctioned uh, beginning in 2017, 2016, 2017. That's how the sanctions began. And then they grew right now. No international corporation can do business with uh, Venezuelan state enterprises. And I mean, like an Italian cannot do business with EMI, the Italian oil corporation, cannot do business with Venezuela because it will get sanctioned by the U.S. if it does business with Venezuela. So imagine the impact of that on a country that is... You know, that, as I said before, 98% of, of its external income came from oil four years ago, five years ago. 
the impact is really devastating. So that's the, the crime of Venezuela. The stated crime of Venezuela is that we don't have a democracy, which is absolutely false. This is a democracy. I mean, in terms of the formal liberal democracy, this is a formal liberal democracy, just like any other formal liberal democracy. There's a lot still to be done in terms of making a substantive, participative and protagonic democracy here in Venezuela. But what, what Venezuela is being accused of is not the real reason why Venezuela is being sanctioned. So is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up, Sira? Uh, no, I mean, I encourage everybody to uh, turn to Venezuela Analysis, which is uh, an outlet that I work for. It's uh, an English-speaking outlet. And there you can find news and interviews. Uh, the interviews that I've done with uh, Indorca and with uh, El Panal are there. But also you can keep abreast of the impact of the sanctions. And everything else that goes down here in Venezuela, you can learn about it uh, there in our website. And, and I guess the last thing that I would like to say in a more kind of like political tone is that, of course, solidarity with us is very important. But the most important thing is the struggles wherever you are, you know, be on the left side of it and push for us, uh, wherever you are listening to us from. That's the most important thing for the Bolivarian Revolution, that there are other revolutionary initiatives wherever you are listening, wherever you are fighting, that the struggle goes on in whatever way uh, you want to. But of course, it has to be a struggle for the working class against all for forms of oppression, where, however they may express themselves, where, where those of us, the, for those of you who are listening are. you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Uh, 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 uh,